Artistic Whispers Productions presents Antithesis Book One Predestination and Other Games of Chance A podcast novel written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer Author contact information at www.jdsawyer.net Featuring the vocal talents of Ryan Levy Stephen H. Wilson Aaron K. Balabanian Renee Wilson with original music by Danny Shade. This story contains harsh language, sexual situations, and graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. And now, episode 13. Hello, this is Michael Spence, co-author of Daughter of Heaven in the brand new fantasy anthology Sword and Sorceress 23, just released from Norlana Books. You're listening to Antithesis, Book One, and this is the story so far. The solar system is heating up. On Earth, Senator Shelley is positioning himself to withdraw support for lunar independence, while on Luna, a judge he appointed is working against him. Douglas Reeves is running the resistance movement. At the moment, none of this is of any interest to the Hartmans. How could it be? They haven't been checking their email. Running from retaliation from their failure to apprehend Reuben Briggs, Ali and Jim Hartman have made their new home on Mars, a planet nearly as barren and broken as their marriage. After months of coldness between them, they've all but given up on one another. Jim has abandoned Ali to her depression, and Ali has abandoned Jim to whatever keeps him occupied during the day. They've each been waiting for something to happen, now, as Alyssa avoids reading a message in her inbox that might change everything, Jim has left to go on another shopping trip for spices. This time, he's not going to the bazaar. He's following the sprite-like young spice vendor to the commune she calls home. It's just a shopping trip. Or so he keeps telling himself. He smelled it as soon as he got off the tube. The smoke and spice seemed to fill the dome. Marjorie told him that he would know how to find her when he got off the tube, and he thought she was a little nuts. He thought she was a little nuts anyway, living on a commune, selling spices, and the furtive conversations he'd caught with her while Allie was away only seemed to confirm that she was, to put it bluntly, fruity as a bat. But he had kept the morning glory seeds. He hadn't used them, but he couldn't bring himself to throw them away, either. They were... potential. And his life needed potential. Of some sort. Somehow. The seeds were back home now. He reviled thinking of that vile little hovel as home. In his spice cupboard, in a nondescript bag behind the peppercorns. Allie wouldn't know what they were if she stumbled across them. She wouldn't even register that they weren't a proper spice. She loved his cooking, but she had no appreciation for what went into it. She saw what he did as magic, and that was wonderful as far as it went. But it didn't go all that far. He'd not sat down and just spent time shooting the breeze with another proper cook in forever. He hadn't had time with someone who understood what went into what he did. 
Oh, certainly Allie knew how good he was at everything he did, but she didn't know what it meant to him. Why should she? She wasn't an artist. She didn't have an artistic bone in her body. She had work, and she had play. She didn't get any satisfaction from the subtle, hard work, the gentle meditation of exacting standards. Her exactitude gave her no joy. It just was. His was a religion. It was no wonder that they couldn't make it work. When he stepped out of the tube station annex, the scent of cloves and cumin scratched at his nostrils. The smoke was thick enough to create sunbeams, and it hit his eyes like onions plucked from God's fist. He didn't know whether the tears were from the smoke or from relief. The space before him was vast and largely undeveloped. It was new. The dust from the construction hadn't yet been cleared off the floor. The plaque at the tube station said that the dome had just opened a few months ago, right at the tail end of the European pullout, at the height of the immigration slump. The domes were actually spheres dug half into the ground, with the commercial centers and government offices on the main level, habitation immediately above and below, and the industrial works at the very bottom vented separately to the outside. The residential units were built in response to demand, and until they got built, the tops of the domes were empty. This one wasn't just empty up top. The ground floor was nearly clear from rim to rim. The parks hadn't even been planted. Wide stretches of mounded up soil, tilled and waiting, but so far no one had deigned to scatter the seed across them. For a hundred meters in front of him, Jim saw nothing but bare concrete, covered only by construction debris. In the distance, through the haze, he saw a collection of small buildings surrounded by a colorful array of awnings and tapestries, and in the midst of them rose what looked like a giant statue. But of what? He couldn't say. The smoke intensified around the little village. It was spiced. Blinking his eyes clear, Jim let his nose lead him towards them. Every step he took felt like one more meter moved away from the real world and into heaven. Life was everywhere. There were rats and mice feasting at the compost heap on the east side. Perhaps the constant spice smoke was to cover the stench. And children played tag in the debris. They shrieked and skidded and skipped and rolled on the ground, dodging one another, a ground-bound murder of crows competing for primacy. They swooped and wheeled and seemed to float, even when one tripped and fell to the ground. When they spotted Jim, they shifted their game until he was the center of it. They didn't include him. They didn't speak to him. They seemed not to notice him as anything but a moving focal point, and yet they ran all around him like moths around a lamp on a summer evening. The colors were bright, brighter than the pale yellow Martian sunlight ever seemed to permit. There were blues here. Blues were normally washed brown under yellow light. And purples, reds, brighter than blood. Where did they get their colors? If he hadn't known better, he'd have thought that the little dark-haired girl wearing fairy wings knew how to use them to fly. Closer now, he could see the adults going about their business. They sat in circles around incense fires, singing, laughing. Some of them were eating meat and vegetables roasted in the cumin smoke. Some were tending vaporizer bowls. 
Others moved here and there as if following a song that was always just on the edge of hearing. A number of them were gathered on a collection of couches, reading and transcribing books by hand. Real books made of hemp paper. The men and women alike dressed in simple garments, thin gray ponchos, and brightly colored sarongs. But not really enough to protect anyone from the elements, not even thick enough for modesty. The faintest light from the right angle pierced through them like they weren't even there. They were pure adornment, nothing more, as if the long flowing lines were part of their religion. The white that Marjorie wore at the spice stand in the North Dome must have been special clothing for outsiders. Here, there was no such formality. They seemed above such things, like children in a freshly tilled garden. The whole camp had an air of temporality, as if the slightest breath from the wrong direction would whisk it all away to a yet undiscovered world. Marjorie hadn't told him where to go, but somehow he knew, more certainly than he'd once known the folds and grooves of Allie's body, he knew that she would be in the inner circle, somewhere near a kitchen. Somewhere near the smell of scorched spinach and vaporized gristle, she would be there, past the first ring of buildings, in the inner sanctum, closest to God. As he worked his way through the first series of doorways, the flight of children fell away behind him, moving off in search of a new sun to orbit, one whose space was not infringed by such trivial concerns as walls and door jams. He reached out and touched the rails around the control pad before pressing the open button, and the part of his mind that still automatically cataloged anomalous things noted that the writing on the buttons was an unlikely combination of Cyrillic and Sanskrit characters. He pressed the largest one, and the door dilated. A dark corridor lay before him, and he stepped in. All color is rebellion, the protest of galactic ash against the overwhelming hot-tempered solar winds. Matter bounces the particles back at the sun and scatters them around, revolting against the fusion fire's all-piercing gaze. But in the dark, there was neither light nor reflection. As Jim stepped steadily through it, he knew he wouldn't collide with anything. He knew that here, the light was banished with its rebellion. In the dark, there was stasis and balance. But for him, the dark was his rebellion. In stepping through the long, dark portal guided only by the sound of his feet, he left his obligations behind. Everything about this place was electric. It was another world. It was the one place in the universe that was still alive. When the darkness in front of him opened its eye and shone the blinding blue light on him, he was ready. He stepped through into the dazzling, doing his best to avoid shading his eyes. Ah, he's here. It wasn't Marjorie's voice. It was a man's voice. Booming, kind, fatherly. Jim's eyes were still adjusting to the brilliance and only caught a movement of the shadow before he found himself being cuffed firmly on the shoulder and given a hearty handshake and then kissed lightly on each cheek. 
He greeted Jim formally, his voice tumbling from his lips like so much liquid chocolate. Marjorie told us to expect you. Welcome to our temporary home. I'm Jim. Pleased to meet you. Taken aback, Jim mumbled the greeting through his shock. The shadow, which was by now reluctantly taking on the form of a silver-bearded, balding European man, pressed a bowl into his hand. Drink! Our blood is yours! You are welcome here! Jim raised the bowl to his lips. The rim was rough, and its taste metallic, as if they had made it of clay from the native Martian soil. And he drank. It was dark like blood, and it tasted like purple corn and wine. When he swallowed it, it coated his esophagus and his stomach, and he felt calmed. The vibrancy of the world did not subside, but it became manageable, a flowing of deep currents welling up, rather than a cacophony of splashes as an endless hail hits the surface of a river. He handed the bowl back and blinked twice. The man in front of him was plainly visible, and everything was bathed in a cool blue light, like noontime daylight back home. His real home, in Berkeley, back on Earth. Jim pushed back tears at the thought. It occurred to him, as he looked at the wizened figure before him, that he did not know the man's name. Who are you? Questions are what we're about. Feel free to ask... Whatever you like. I am... He let the words hang in the air for a moment. A child of light. In this life, I carry the name of William. Pleased to meet you. Jim shifted his weight to his right foot, pretending to himself that it was an exercise in readiness. One of the drills he and Allie did with each other over and over to stay sharp. He was always inept when meeting new people socially. But the gesture did nothing to cover his puzzlement. He couldn't understand why he wasn't uncomfortable. William looked at him with a gaze that seemed as old as the stars, but there was no sadness in them. He had the hope of a child. Jim couldn't hold his gaze, even now when awareness seemed to be seeping into him through every pore. It made no sense. This incongruous man held a secret, but it seemed like an open secret. No. That wasn't why he was here. His fingers found the strap of his pack, and he remembered the spices. He remembered Marjorie, and suddenly felt like a child in an unfamiliar home. Where is she? I came to buy some spices. He held up the bag as if it explained something. William laughed kindly. Of course, of course. This must all seem a bit strange to you. Jim smiled with relief. Yes, it is a bit. She's over here. William clapped Jim on the back and directed his gaze inwards with a sweeping gesture, stepping aside to reveal a new glory. Overhead, the light streamed through a cloth, pure white light. It came straight down into the long ovals surrounded on all sides by buildings, looking for all the galaxy like the courtyard of an ancient walled city. The light fell down like water, onto piles and piles of color. There were vegetables here, fresh vegetables. Garlic and onions hung on strings from scaffolding that had been appropriated to give a structure to the treasure trove. Meats hung above the censer bowls, curing in the smoke. Refrigeration cabinets lined the walls in a semicircle at the far end of the oval. 
barely visible through the smoke. Herbs dried on racks, spices hung in baskets and cheesecloths from the ceiling. And there, in the middle of it all, the heart of a sensual feast that could keep him enraptured from now until his dying day, stood Marjorie. She moved lightly and easily between tasks, hanging garlic, shaking the roasting racks, rotating cured meats. As she stretched and bent, her white flesh, almost solid in the bright light, was broken by sinewy shadow lines as her tendons and muscles moved beneath her skin. Its shifting pattern drew him unnaturally. For a moment, he felt like his mind would flow into the texture itself and understand the secret of the universe. She was dressed only in a sarong, bright orange, tied haphazardly about her waist, and a straw sombrero shielded her eyes from direct light. Before he realized he was even moving, he found himself standing next to her, picking up her scent, just barely, under the cinnamon and cloves and smoky garlic in the air. She turned to look at him, with laughter in her eyes. I'm glad you made it. She embraced him, and he was suddenly aware of her breasts pressing against him. Until now, it had seemed the most natural thing in the world that she was working only in a makeshift skirt. I need some more. He stumbled, his words lost between a mastering desire to kiss her and his barely controlled urge to run away. I told you that you'd be back. She took his bag from his hands, prying his fingers loose gently like a mother taking a blanket from a clutching child. He suddenly felt naked. She hummed softly and busied herself filling the bag from memory. She gave him a measure of each spice he had bought before. He had already wired payment, at a price much lower than the one he had paid at the bazaar. She had wanted him here. Why the discount? It takes a lot of effort to cart everything to North Dome. We go, we put it up, we take it down. It's a full day. And here you have everything already. She smiled in acknowledgement and took a string of garlic bulbs down from a hook. He did his best to keep his eyes on her face rather than on her nipples, or her hips flaring and flashing out from under the ill-fitting skirt. How do you grow all of this? The gods are kind to us, and William looks after us when the land is not as bountiful as it could be. But now... She set the bag down and closed her eyes, as if in prayer, stretching her hands out above her head in a gesture of supplication. The land is bountiful, and the stars are calling. She lowered her arms, the outlines of her rib bones melting once again into her form. He would have thought he felt like a child... But he couldn't remember where the children had feelings this momentous, thoughts this exalting. Jim smiled sheepishly and made a show of examining a censer. Well, I'm certainly glad I found you. Your, your booth. His tongue seemed to know things about him that his mind wasn't admitting. Off-world cooking ain't easy. But you're on a world. A better world than you've known. Well, the fruits of the land might be bountiful. But Mars... He would be dead if we weren't here. She finished his order and brought his bag back to him, standing closer than he would have dared had their positions been reversed. She pressed the strap into his hand and held on to his fingers, running one hand over the back of his ring finger, over the bare spot worn into the hair by his wedding ring. A wedding ring he'd accidentally left in the bathroom this morning. It had been an accident. There's life everywhere. We're only children of the light that brings life to every world. 
She traced her hand up to his face. Today is special, you know. It is? Jim wasn't inclined to argue, but he felt awkward staying silent. It is. She pressed her finger to his lips and smiled lightly. A homecoming. The celebration starts soon. He nodded. I'd better get along then. The light, which had been so bright, darkened. The world seemed to lose three shades of intensity, and he discovered, belatedly, that his hand was resting on her hip. Nonsense, young man. William's kind voice seemed to come from all directions at once. Had he never left the room? Our blood is your blood. You should join us. Allie unclasped her pearl necklace and slipped it out from around her neck. She sat up and held her left hand out and lowered the long strand into a pile in her palm. It was too large for her to close her fist around, but she closed it anyway and squeezed. There were no sharp edges, and it would not break the skin, but the solidness was reassuring. She squeezed with all her strength, rolling the beads past one another until the string that held them together broke and then threw them violently at the wall. She stood up, gingerly tiptoeing through the scattered pearls and the broken string, and slipped on a shirt long enough to be a skirt. She smoothed it down over her thighs and went into the kitchen. Her jaw was set, her back rigid. She poured herself a water, then thought better of it and poured herself a schnapps. She knocked it back in a single swallow and slammed the tumbler down onto the counter, shattering it. The glass fragments cutting into her fingers barely registered. Absently wrapping her fingers in a piece of rag shirt, she fixed her gaze on the window looking out across the causeway to the tube station. We've had enough time to get used to Mars. She focused on her reflection, pale in the glass, and spoke as if to her younger self. Now it's time for Mars to get used to us. She threw the polarizing switch, and the window turned dark. Swaddled in opacity, in the secrecy she craved, she pulled a bar stool up in front of the wall terminal and straddled it. Primary box. The Spartan interface pulled up the business email. Atop a woefully short stack of messages for lost pets, divorce cases, and other minor detritus that occupies a PI's time, there was one she hadn't opened. It was from someone she'd hoped she'd never hear from again. Open message from Douglas Reeves. The meal was simple. Lentils and bread, much as one would get in a Sikh temple. With a bit of meat Jim didn't recognize that William said was symbolic of the body of the universe. Everyone sat around in the circle and shared, eating with their hands as had been done by the Sikhs for millennia. The circle was populated by the best of the best. Astrogators, physicists, poets, musicians, physicians, biologists, and by their children. Marjorie's father was a physician, one who had specialized in pharmacology and entheogenesis, a word she told Jim meant creating God from within. As they sat on the ground beneath the dome, gathered around an ordinary fire, no incense burned. The heat and heartiness of the food cleared Jim's head, and he was able to enjoy conversation with experts in fields he couldn't hope to comprehend. 
Even with his criminal justice degree backing up his years of experience, his wits were no match for the elegant deliberation of the mind of a scientist or a poet. Normally he would have felt dwarfed, but the camaraderie and the fellowship brought the barriers between them low. Indeed, the thing that separated him most from them was not his background, it was his clothing. He was comfortable with their lack of dress, but he couldn't join them himself. He didn't have the right. Even if he did, he wasn't sure he'd have the courage. As the meal finished, a few of the musicians pulled out bongos, zithers, and flutes. They wound their ways around each other's melodies until they found a unity between them, the voices of the instruments somehow coming together to make a single tune, light and airy, full of hope. As they passed around small seed cakes, Jim finally found the words to ask his questions, trying to talk in spite of Marjorie's furtive, gentle touches on his foot. William, thank you for your hospitality. He raised his glass at his host, trying to find a way not to sound too stilted and formal. Your heart is pure, my friend. William raised his glass in return. You are always welcome at our table. Our blood is your blood. May I ask a question? All questions contain the seed of their own answer. Scatter your seed before us, my friend. Let us all enjoy its fruit. William's tone was gentle, and Jim couldn't detect a hint of innuendo or slyness in it. Still, he shifted uncomfortably on his pillow at the vividness of the metaphor. What are you all doing here? He winced at his clumsiness among such elegant people. We're waiting. The statement hung in the air for two solid moments. It seemed sufficient until Marjorie laid her head on his leg and looked up at him adoringly. Her eyes glistened in the failing dome light. But what are you waiting for? William regarded him for a long moment and chewed thoughtfully on his seed cake. The tune changed subtly and Jim took a bite from his own cake. Then, as if his voice were only another instrument in the music, William spoke. I was the son of wealth. When I was 14, my mother sent me away to learn business and philosophy and then to travel the world. It was important to her that when I took over the family business, it would be because it was what I loved. When I was 17, I came to Harimandu Sahib and God revealed himself to me there in meditation. A hum rose from several people in the circle, like the Hindu Om. It also blended with the music and resonated in the vast, empty chamber. He told me that my destiny was different, that there would come a day when I would leave the earth, that people would come with me, and that together we would find the way to the light. You see, Jim, we are all made of light. Our atoms are born in the hearts of stars and our evolution is fertilized by light. Those atoms are made up of quanta, tiny packets of that light that the stars put out, pieces of creation. And yet on Earth we spend half our lives in darkness. That can't be right. We move slowly while light outdoes us at every turn. We are waiting here for a sign. Around this circle, there are four Nobel Prize winners and a great number of other wise ones. They all came with me, just as God told me they would, to help me find it. What are you looking for? The seat 
of creation, God's throne. Written inside are the secrets of the universe, the final piece of the puzzle we need to unlock the gates of heaven where he will welcome us home. It is out there somewhere. We will find it. William took another bite of his seed cake and closed his eyes as if he were tasting the milk of a goddess. The music swelled and Jim's vision swam. It was perfect. It was crazy. It made no sense. But it was perfect. Everything since he'd gotten here told him it was true. The light, the bright colors, the perfect music always playing like wind through crystal. Marjorie's eyes... Everything glowed. Everything shined. His head lulled to one side, and he reached out to touch Marjorie's face. It was real. All of it. As impossible as it was, all of it was real. When will you go? Jim couldn't even recognize his own voice as it blended with the symphony. A chorus rose up around him, a hymn in a language he didn't recognize, but as he listened, it seemed to answer all his questions. His mind opened, and he felt the truth of the universe. Staring into the fire, he saw the stanzas weaving flames in a story, deep sorrow and longing meeting with violence and desperation, persecution and the quest for perfection. It was all there, in the song, their whole journey. It was painted in the flames like a movie, more vivid than any he'd ever seen. He took the final morsel of seed cake into his mouth and let it melt on his tongue. He rolled his tongue and felt the grit of the ground seeds on the roof of his mouth. It was orgasmic. The music quickened and a dance was forming. He didn't try to dance. He didn't think he could manage the balance. Instead, Jim stayed still and let it unfold before him. The dance was clearly a ritual. They were reenacting the song, the long journey that had led them here from their various homes, the struggles that had brought them together, a reenactment of the moving portraits in the flames. They mirrored each other, and the frenzy grew. As it grew, Marjorie danced across the coals in the long fire, and the flames licked up her legs. The fire caught on the edge of her sarong, and she grabbed the edge of the knot and slipped it free, whipping the fiery cloth around her body like a streamer dance. The rhythm pounded and his pulse beat to it as this perfect woman gyrated and spun and flipped above the fire, dipping her hair low over it and then coating the flames with her pubic hair. The sarong burned brighter until it was all afire, and still she did not let go until it evaporated like flash paper. The rhythm halted and Marjorie froze in tableau until a new melody came through. A soft, sensual one, like the sound of flowers blooming. A man and a woman gathered around her and ran their fingers down the length of her body, never touching, but Jim could swear he heard her shiver. The new dance unfolded slowly, and a lone canter seated next to William chanted in another new language, a doleful tune that held all the longing in the world. A lament for what they had not yet become. A plea for enlightenment and mercy. A bowl made its way around the circle, everyone taking a sip. Jim spotted it being passed opposite him. He saw it in the firelight through Marjorie's legs. 
The phantom touches turned into tender embraces, and her two dance partners removed their sarongs as well and cast them on the fire with great deliberation. The three walked together, fates and prophets, calling silently to the lost world, leaning on each other like three sides of a coin. Marjorie knelt before Jim, miming her dance to him alone, begging him to come in to her, to find salvation in her family, in her body, in her faith. She took the communion bowl that passed around the circle and drank of it. Then she looked tearfully at him. She proffered the bowl, her eyes streaming in desperate supplication. And she prayed. We are children of the light, alone in the night. Our flesh is your flesh, our blood is your blood, our body is your home. Our life flows with the blood of the sun, we drink in its children and take them into us. We drink the tears of God and we are united with him. Jim looked at her. He took the bowl, his touch lingering on her fingers before he pulled it to himself. The drink smelled like sex and looked like liquid ochre. He felt her trembling, smelled her breath. He wanted her. He wanted her more than he'd ever wanted anything. He wanted to live his life among the spices, to leave the coldness behind. Here, on this cold, red rock, there was love and warmth enough to set fire to the whole world. He lifted the bowl to his lips and trembled. He willed himself to drink. But it smelled wrong. It smelled like sex. Smells like Allie. He could see her face there in the fire, looking away from him, lost in her rosary prayer to a god who had abandoned her in a world that had stolen from her, trapped by the theft he should have prevented. He closed his eyes and steeled himself. Damn her anyway. She doesn't want me. She never did. He took the liquid into his mouth, and it was bitter, like his guilt. He choked and spat and coughed and vomited it up. Everything. The lentils, the cake, the wine, the liquid, the bread, the meat, all at once in a torrent of bile and hatred. He screamed and stood up and threw the bowl into the fire in his rage. The liquid sprang into flame, livid and dazzling. His eyes stung, and all he could see was blood. He cast about blindly for his pack, ignoring Marjorie's screams and William's shouts, slapping away the comforting hands that tried to hold him still. His hand found the bag and wrapped firmly around the strap. Then, with all the strength he had left, he stumbled into the darkness and found his footing and ran. Now for the final test. A good P.I. needed good hands, and hers had gone months without any drilling or practice. A woman's hands should always appear elegant, deft, and idle. It was a mantra she'd picked up from a 19th century etiquette book when writing a sociology paper in college. Most people would have noticed it only as an example of backwards Victorian sexual politics, but Allie read it and saw its potential. Deftness appearing idle was a strategy used by ambush killers and predators throughout nature, and Allie had always been a predator. She would never again use cards on a job. That was something she determined to put behind her, the only part of her daily prayers that did not feel completely empty. Alec's heart was dead, murdered by Reuben Briggs, and good riddance. 
But cards were the best practice for deftness appearing as elegance and elegance masquerading as idleness. Allie shuffled the deck and dealt another four-handed game. Once it was dealt, she set the cards down in the center and picked through each of the hands. If all had gone right, she would have a straight flush of hearts on her left, four aces opposite her, a whole lot of nothing to her right, and a full house in her own hand. She lifted up the cards in order, checking them, and a smile of triumph crossed her lips. Not a card out of place. Not one. Her hands remembered. She was ready. It was time to start again. The door complained under the assault. Allie dove for the gun in the end table and came up with the barrel trained on the door just as it dilated and Jim stumbled through. He looked crazed and he stank of curry and alcohol and vomit. He stared blankly at her and clutched his bag to his chest like a child. Like a child. It was all she could do not to shoot him in the head. Reluctantly, she dropped the gun. Where have you been? Allie? He looked at her like he could barely remember her face. Yes? She clipped her tone so the rage didn't spill over too soon. Her words were measured and deliberate. Where have you been? He looked around like a little lost boy. I... <laughs> drank. He never drank. I went to get spices. They... His voice trailed off and he stepped unsteadily into the flat, looking all around him as if he expected the walls to swoop in and beat him. She went over and tried to guide him to the couch, but he flinched away and then slapped her hands down hard. She slapped him hard across the face and he looked at her with vacant astonishment. But he did not stumble back. Allie? Tears welled up in his eyes. Allie! He lunged for her, threw his arms around her and kissed her. She pounded his chest and tried to fight him off, but he held her tight and kept kissing her with his foul breath, muttering incoherently to her about seeing her in a fire. She cocked her hand back and punched his diaphragm, and he crumbled. <clears throat> Stumbling back, she looked at him on the ground, groaning and gasping for breath. <clears throat> she only meant to speak sternly, but her words came out in a screaming wail. Keep your fucking hands off me! What is wrong with you? I, w I went to get spices. They wanted, they wanted me to join. He gasped and grimaced and forced the words out between clenched teeth. And they gave me this uh, stuff, stuff to drink. I don't, I just, I, got, I don't know what. But, and, they, and, they, and they drugged me and I, I started to see things. Oh, God, how could you be so goddamn stupid? She spat the words at him. It was an accusation, not a question. He looked up at her, and she blanched. She'd hit a nerve. He clawed his way back to standing, his face sweating and pale from the pain, and stood nose to nose with her. He was taller than she was, and more powerful, and he was making sure she knew it. I'm not going to justify myself to you. I've been nearly two years feeding you and watching your back. You've checked out. Been a fucking ghost. I will not answer to you anymore. Allie staggered backwards like she'd been struck. She turned her back on him and faced the wall, trying to keep her tears contained. She shouldn't have started this. She couldn't handle it. They couldn't afford it. Not now. There was business to do, and the fight wasn't productive. 
Not daring to turn and face him, she spoke to the wall. We have a job. There is a hard copy of the commission on the table. Take a shower. Sober up. We'll talk in the morning. She took a deep breath and held it for a second, letting her heart rate slow. Then she turned and headed for the bedroom. Before she'd moved two feet, he spoke. I'm sorry. She felt his hand on her shoulder, and she snapped. She whirled around and batted his hands away, then stood on her toes to stare him down. Don't you ever touch me again! She felt the tissues in her throat tearing as she screamed. He made to yell back at her, but she whirled away and stomped down the hall. She heard him swallow his words into a growl. Stopping at the door, she took another breath and spoke over her shoulder again. You sleep on the couch. I don't want to see you again until you're ready to talk business. She strode through the door and slammed it shut. She locked it behind her. You've been listening to episode 13 of Antithesis, book 1, Predestination, and Other Games of Chance. Written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer. Original music by Danny Shade, used with permission. This episode starred Brian Levy as Jim, Aaron Balabanian as Allie, Stephen H. Wilson as William Ellison, and Renee Wilson as Marjorie. Some sounds courtesy the Free Sound Project at www.freesound.org. Other sounds copyright 2008, Kitty Nakian and Artistic Whispers Productions. This audiobook was recorded, edited, and mixed at Artistic Whispers Productions in Castro Valley, California. The book is copyright 1997 and 2008, J. Daniel Sawyer, and the recording is copyright 2008, Artistic Whispers Productions. This recording is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, and all other rights are reserved to the author. You've chased the bard and been caught in the weaver's web. You've heard her voice whispering from the edge of Moravi and echoing through the levels of Metamore City. But if you think you know Philippa Valentine, think again. From the front lines of World War II to the farthest reaches of space, the author of Digital Magic brings you the most basic force in the universe. Sex. Made to order. Every month, you pick the ingredients. And the Kiwi Temptress mixes up your order and then spices it hot. And I mean hot. This podcast is so hot, iTunes banned it after one episode. Philippa Ballantyne presents Erotica a la carte. Subscribe today at www.eroticaelacarte.com and start listening tonight. If you've ever lived around sincerely religious folks, you're going to recognize some elements of the Children of Light. If you've ever spent time around New Age communes or evangelical churches or the human potential movement, you might find yourself eerily at home. Richard Dawkins' wishes aside, and sometimes mine for that matter, religion is not going to die out in the world. I've got my own theories about why, but I won't bore you with them here. I've got two whole other podcasts where I talk about things like that, which you can find links to on my homepage at jdsawyer.net. 
But there are few things that motivate people more than religion, and that is still the case in the world of antithesis. 120 years from now, and 60 years into the post-singularity technological explosion. Jim may have just barely escaped a fate worse than Nirvana, but I somehow doubt that this is going to be the last we see of William Ellison and his Children of Light. Oh, in case you're wondering, yes, that was me and the lovely Kitty Nakian in that promo for Philippa Ballantyne's Erotica a la carte. She actually was banned from iTunes for 24 hours, and it seemed like a good thing to help her capitalize on. It's a great podcast, too. You can check it out at eroticalacart.com. I'm dropping the feedback show Thursday, so if you want to get in on it, send your comments. Also, send in questions, attaboys, criticisms, and death threats. Leave voicemail at 206-350-2340, or email me an mp3 at dan at jdsawyer.net, or you can leave feedback on the blog at antithesis.jdsawyer.net. If you're liking the show, please help spread the word. Burn the first two episodes to a CD and give them to a friend. Post links on forums you frequent, maybe in your SIG line where you're not spamming. And definitely, please leave reviews on iTunes and Blueberry for us. The more listeners we get, the more fun this is for me, and hopefully for you too. Keep listening through November, as there will be more interesting promotional events. And until next week, what does Doug have in store for Jim and Allie? How will they find a way to work together? What's going on back on Luna with Cassie, or on Nineveh with Joss? How do Jim and Allie know Doug? And what happened between the three of them before? Find out next week, and remember, it isn't whether you win or lose, it's how you rig the game.